Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I am truly humbled and honored that you've taken the time to spend some time with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that this episode is brought to you by you. That's right, folks. This podcast exists because you want it to. And despite requests that come in for sponsorship, we have no paid advertising supporting this show. This approach gives me the opportunity to maintain an unbiased voice while conducting these interviews. I do have one request and ask of you, however. If indeed you do find these podcasts interesting and valuable, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do me the simple favor of recommending and sharing it through whatever medium you choose, offline or online. If you want to throw a hashtag, I love data centers, in any online shares you do, even better. Thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy listening to this next interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Welcome, everybody, to yet another episode of I Love Data Centers. I am happy to introduce you to Misha with Megaport. Uh, Misha and I met about two, three years ago, and he's my kind of peeps in that Misha is not only one of the smartest engineers I've met, but he also knows how to hold a conversation and just hang out and be a normal human being, which is I know a lot of engineers out there uh, can can attest and salespeople who work with engineers can attest and even customers can attest. Those, those are a rare breed in the industry. So uh, Misha, thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast. Oh man, super excited to be a part of your series and thanks for the shout out, man. It's awesome. You are very welcome. So one thing that I want to dig into, I know we briefly talked about this, but right out the gate, uh, you are, are you a native of North Carolina? No, I'm, I'm actually, so I'm originally from, uh, I'm from a kind of a, an inner suburb of, um, north of Manhattan in New York city, but I, I've been down here for, for a really long time. I moved down in the South when I was a kid. So been in the Carolinas ever since. So not too far from your backyard, man, in Raleigh. I'm in Charlotte, yeah, yeah. North Carolina. And are you in are you in Charlotte today? Yeah, sure am. And I'm enjoying this amazing weather. I hope we get yeah. it all weekend because I'm gonna be around and probably try to do some hiking. Yeah, I know you're a, a road warrior as am I. <laughs> so it's always nice to spend time. You're back. Yeah, I usually say <laughs> Yeah, what I usually you say? say you can you can usually find me in uh terminal B or terminal C. Right. <laughs> the Charlotte Douglas Airport coming in and out, you know, hopping right. planes to get to where we're going. So uh, growing up, I mean, you, you've spent almost your entire career in the, on the network engineering side of the house. But growing up, how did you get, did you know you wanted to get into technology and, and IT? Like what, what got you interested in that space and in that world that we live in today? Yeah, sure. So I, I mean, to your point, I actually started fairly early. Um, so, you know, I'll probably share a bit about my, my childhood and how I got into this space, specifically telecommunications, because, you know, which happened to be right out of high school um, and how they got me involved really into data centers and to where I am today in our community. So, um, you know, to your point, 
my senior year of high school, I got the chance to apply for an early graduation based off of how many credits I completed. And so I immediately signed up and said, you know, let's, let's do it. Um, ever since I can remember, I always had this itch and I'm at a young age, just dive into the workforce. And, you know, back when I was a kid, you know, my family didn't come from a lot, but it, it gave me a chance to try a bunch of small gigs on the side part time to just experience, you know, different things at a young age while I was going through high school. So around 15, I, I quickly learned the value of a dollar. I did things like landscaping and built retaining walls and, you know, bus tables, you, you name it. And, um, you know, that, that got me into what I was doing in my senior year. Um, and I always had kind of the athletic and creative sides to me. I, I, I did sports. I was into baseball and did the whole band thing. Um, you know, I, my, my first instrument was a trumpet. Um, and, uh, I always held that creative side of me as I, you know, still do music up until today and, and play lots of different instruments and stuff. And so it, you know, my point is that gave me this, you know, I, I used a lot of my creative side, um, and I always had this kind of work ethic as a young age and it, it really stimulated me. So my senior year, um, I landed, uh, a gig working at Best Buy part-time and I was in car audio. I was selling speakers and, and amps and navigation was a new thing um, and doing car stereo installs. Um, and this is back in the day when Circuit City was still around um, and even Radio Shack. So that'll kind of tell you the time that this was, uh, which is crazy. You know, so much of that stuff is not around anymore. Um, but it gave me a chance to get my hands around building things, um, which also started, you know, having me source parts from the computer department at Best Buy. And then uh, I would pitch to friends and people that I knew, you know, hey, I can build a beefier PC computer for you uh, for things like gaming uh, versus, you know, you going out and buying a Dell or an HP off the rack. And, you know, for even cheaper than if you do it, you go through me. So, um, man, it was a lot of fun. It, it, was, it was my first time playing around you know, with ordering parts from Best Buy and Newegg.com. I think Newegg's probably still around. Um, now, you know, booting up an operating system and, you know, messing around with the BIOS and sometimes, you know, picking custom parts to sometimes overclock the, you know, some of the clock speeds on this, the CPU. Um, and I, that creative side of me was always, you know, I want to figure out how to put these things together. And uh, to that point, it's like right, it was a bit right out of high school, a friend of mine um, who knew I built computers on the side had mentioned to me there was several openings for a tech support role uh, for this broadband internet company. And I said, all right, what do I need to know? <laughs> Sign me up. So obviously I had no experience with internet connectivity at the time. And, um, you know, my, you know, although my friend gave me some material to study and prep for this interview, uh, which I thought was interesting. Essentially, if you got through the interview, you took this exam. And so going through the material that he gave me and then having the facts find on my own, and man, this is back when I'm digging on, you know, Google Chrome wasn't the thing. It was more of like, what was I using? Internet Explorer or maybe Netscape Navigator was still around, um, which is hilarious to think about now, all the browsers that have changed. Um, it opened me up into this new world of technology. Um, and, you know, I had to start learning about all sorts of acronyms for the first time. So 
you know, protocols that at the time were Greek to me, um, things like TCP IP, you know, how do devices communicate with each other, UDP, uh, file transfer for FTP, you know, the differences between LAN and WAN environments. And, you know, all this was to prep me for an exam. So I ended up passing and I ended up uh, having to take this. It was almost like a mini certification. It was um, multiple choice. I had to go through different types of Q&A and then you had some troubleshooting scenarios to solve connectivity issues for internet and the email hosting. Um, you know, again, I ended up taking the interview. I ended up passing. Um, and that's how I landed my, my first gig as what was called a data specialist. And that broadband company was actually a cable multi-service operator called Charter Communications at the time. That's now Spectrum. Um, and happy to keep going through that trail, but that's how I got involved more so in technology and moving into the industry of telecommunication. Um, the interesting piece there, well, there's two two pieces I want to dive into. One is that you had to take that test before you joined. And I've rarely, if ever, see companies now in our space requiring uh, people to take those exams or tests before they join um, and you know, giving them literature and saying, hey, learn this before you start. It's kind of uh, the other way around. And for better or worse, you know, I would say for <laughs> for worse, uh, although it's kept me, you know, kept the training side of my business alive for <laughs> for some time. Uh, there's a lot of people who are in our space that are customer facing, who don't even understand some of the basic fundamentals of our industry. And it just blows my mind how they're able to just jump from company to company and stay in our industry without doing the the homework uh, to learn what's up. So to that end, you know, in, in your role, you know, you're now senior global director, cloud solutions architect at Megaport, right? It's, have you, you know, is that the title that you guys, that, that, not you guys, that you have these days? Yeah, so that's what I am uh, today. That is the that is the hat that I'm that I'm wearing and carrying around with me. Um, so happy to share a bit about what that's about if you want now. Or well, no, we'll dig into that. The the reason why I bring it up is I'm curious if you find in your role, uh, you know, working with the different engineers and educating them across your company as they come in, do you think? Training should be some part of a, you know, not even training, it's just basic baseline testing should be a prerequisite, prerequisite of some sort before individuals come in, you know, and even saying, hey, here's the material that you need to know, uh, you know, get after it. And we could say, oh, yeah, you know, people, you want to find people who can learn quickly and whatnot, but like, let's put that to the test, right? So you're coming in from a charter into an interconnection platform company. Let's see if you can digest this material and spit it back to us, you know, in both a, a verbal live format as well as a, a written test. Um, is that, you know, you guys pondering doing anything to that extent? Well, I mean, first, I'm so glad that you stopped on that point because ever since that first role, and we're talking, man, we're talking about two decades ago, just to call my age, not saying I'm crazy old, but the reality is this is early 2000. Since that time, I've never had to go through that process again. In the, in the, as it relates to taking some kind of upfront collateral and validating that versus uh, verbally showcasing it or working with the right people and networking and then actually seeing my work speak for itself through my different roles and positions that I've had. So I think it's super interesting to call that out 
And I do think that it's important um, and it could provide a ton of value um, from people culture standpoint, onboarding standpoint, making sure that you have the right person in the right role to be able to, um, to do what they need to do. And so to your second ask, I do think it would be very beneficial for somebody to validate what it is that they potentially are saying that they have on paper or they put on their LinkedIn profile or that uh, they high level can speak to. It's, it's refreshing to be able to see that they can actually validate that by selecting the right thing or demonstrating how they would respond and react to whether it's creating a design or, or asking the right types of questions or validating the right type of product for a scenario. Any of that stuff would go a long way with providing that resolve on making sure that somebody is aware of um, what they say that they can potentially do or what they're signing up for. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the um, Unfortunately, what I see more and more of happening in the industry is people will sign up for a course, you know, a one day, two day, three day or week long, you know, education mm -hmm. class. And at the end of the class, they get a certification. And there's nothing at the end of that class that forces the person who's gone through the class to demonstrate that they've actually learned the material from the class in order to get that certification. Uh, and it's been a frustration of mine. And I get constant pushback uh, from some of the folks that I talk to about this because they feel that uh, they don't, you know, it's almost like the, 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 uh, the generational, um, you know, we, we want to give everybody a ribbon for showing up, right? Because some people may feel left out if they uh, don't get a ribbon for showing up type of mentality. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, going back to the very first comment I made about you, you know, you're successful and you've grown in your career because you're a badass, smart motherfucker. Just put it, put it straight. And those in our industry who succeed and who grow and, uh, move up in their career are those who digest material, learn the ecosystem, learn the different puzzle pieces and, and learn how they all assemble together. And also pick up the soft skills of knowing how to have a conversation with a CFO, a CEO, a director of IT, uh, you know, the, the assistance for all, for all these different people, um, finance, you know, all the different types of people that you have to interact with. And those are skills that people have to learn. And it, it's just uh, increasingly frustrating for me as I go through my career and watching the industry evolve and all these new people coming in that we have such a fundamental lack of that baseline testing of knowledge to make sure that those coming into our industry actually know what the hell they're talking about, which at the end of the day, and I hate to be on my soapbox here, what I see happening is we have customers who get frustrated with having to deal with representatives of a company who don't even understand their own product set, let alone how their product fits in relation to what the customer needs. Um, and I'm going to shut up now, but. Um, no, totally. I mean, you're, you're jumping through hoops, right? And God knows how much time you're adding to lead time to try to close that opportunity and actually do what's right for the customer. Right. Exactly. Um, you're increasing the I, I got involved in the process. Totally, man. And on the former of what you originally said, I think that on around uh, um, somebody doing a review of something and, and getting a certificate. So I would say that, uh, especially for folks like you and I, 
or anybody else that's kind of been around the block and been in this industry and has gone through this process for taking the time to to learn and to figure out the techno speak and to uncover all this stuff. There's a difference between a certificate of completion and being certified. And so typically when you're certified, that comes with an expiration. And that's not to dilute the value of what you know, but things evolve. Jesus, now things are evolving um, every single month, if not week. I mean, there's announcements coming out left and right, which is a whole other animal we can talk about, about why it's so exciting to be a part of our industry and, and, grab, and grab some of this. But being certified validates that you have done the work to comprehend what it is that you spent the time to focus on, whether that's a boot camp or having to do different types of demo tests and, and to validate um, you know, how to troubleshoot something, a scenario, or justify the definition to what a term represents and means. I think um, that's pretty compelling. Watching a couple of videos, going through a couple of click-throughs, and then saying you have a, you know, cert- a certificate that you completed that, um, I think is, uh, is a whole other ballgame. And um, I-, I think there's a place for that. I think that sometimes those are building blocks, so I would still encourage it. But I do think that being able to respond after you've watched, listened, you've actually heard something to showcase how you process that and to validate that you actually understand it is so important. And it is lacking in our industry. And it's lacking in how we communicate with each other. And to your point about being able to help a business, um, you know, the, the time that they have to put in to forecast moving in or out of the cloud and picking a data center environment to move from on-prem into a co-located data center. There's so much complexity. They need experts. They need advisors that actually know what it is they're talking about. They take the time to learn and study this stuff. And you've gone through that process through, I think you have a number of Cisco certifications, don't you? Yeah. So, you know, I've gone through, I've, I've had, I've had four different certifications, um, for, for, for networking based certifications with, with Cisco over the years. Um, and, you know, I'm constantly stimulating myself by, um, by studying and there's so many different ways to do this. Um, you know, a lot of my resources, um, when I did get certified were on, um, both, uh, the hardware vendor itself, Cisco, um, getting material from them and from third parties, um, very credible, um, you know, third party entities that would provide, um, webinar or video tutorials. And then you can do your own, um, you, your own demos. You can log in and, and configure your own command line environments and, and build out networks between, you know, routers and switches. Um, I think that stuff's important. I don't think you necessarily have to go to a boot camp, but it gives you that true hands-on. You also can socialize with others to validate what it is that you're learning. And fundamentally, networking is so important at every level, on uh, meaning physical network, associating with people, making them aware of what it is that you're up to, what you're learning. If you don't, you have no idea how much how powerful that can be for you down the road. And the more that you put into that by being around people. Uh, those boot camps and those classes or on-site trainings um, can go a long way for you. Um, and there's now things that are shifting away from just traditional networking, right? I, the more focus is on how do we make the network uh, simple, 
and less complex. And, you know, in my opinion, it becomes almost an afterthought. So much of while your decision makers for IT, they're thinking about apps. You know, how do I, how do I build out this app? How do I leverage this application that's hosted in XYZ public or private cloud? They're, they're not heavily focused on, oh, the networking, whether IP VPN over the internet or I got to focus on this, this layer three BGP pairing because I'm going private and going direct. Um, and not saying that there's not a place for that because there absolutely is. But the industry's trying to remove the barrier and make that more simplified. And that's obviously what we're trying to do for who I work with now at Megaport. Um, and there's even other providers that are trying to complement that. Um, but there's this shift that I'm seeing as it relates to learning more about compute, learning more about infrastructure and platform um, and software as a service. And, you know, happy, happy to discuss what those things um, mean and what they mean to me. But um, there's, you know, boot camps and there's, there's training like Cloud Guru um, that focus on all of these public cloud provider concepts. Um, and, and what's cool about them, and I do recommend them, a cloud guru is they go into some of the fundamentals. So even stuff that I learned in my first data specialist job with internet connectivity, how does that work? And then moving up, um, into more in depth, more technical things like the actual network stack where you're at, move from physical layer one into layer two switching and the layer three routing, but more so into what is infrastructure as a service? What is platform and what is software as a service? Um, how does that correlate to a cloud and to a data center? So, yeah, happy to happy to share that. Well, let's start by breaking down and just dive right in. Um, let's break down a couple of the terms and terminology uh, commonly used in the industry. And one of those would be multi-cloud. So what, what the heck is multi-cloud? Yeah, sure. So, you know, for starters, it's a business approach, right? So meaning more than one cloud vendor is being used, which can consist of both public and private clouds to run your business. So it's always going to come down to an enterprise's business needs. Keep that as a fundamental. And even though things can get more in depth in the weeds, your skill set of keeping things as simple as possible and figuring out what to target is so powerful into helping a customer into winning opportunities. So, you know, there can be advantages to leveraging different types of clouds to support your business operations, your, your customer experience, a hosted app that you need to use to run your business or even deploy for your own customers. And the list just goes on. So let's, let's go through a common use case. Like what, what do you see most common as a multi-cloud uh, environment leveraged by certain customers? Yeah, I, I think one that is more of a um, low-hanging fruit, if you will, that is a little bit easier barrier to entry is archival data, right? Um, getting to a point where so much data is being processed, um, which is a whole other topic in itself, but at different levels of the business, whether it's coming inbound, um, whether you're creating that um, on your own, your own on-prem, your own infrastructure in, in a co-located data center. What are you doing with that data? Where does that data live? Where does it rest? Um, and there's different types. There's, there's, there's mission critical data. 
There's stuff that you may not even touch for a quarter or for a year, or it's completely back up. Is it, is it mission critical or is this stuff that you could just set and forget for quite some time, but you need to potentially recover it? That stuff you can offload, uh, some of it. Some of it you may want to keep um, and have full control over, but migrating data sets is definitely an approach that is a little bit easier to digest and to scope out the work that's included. And that's where a public cloud provider, for example, um, could shine. You know, they make these massive server farms. And if it just so happens to be that you don't need a tap in this data or doesn't have high latency requirements, that stuff is cheap. I would factor moving stuff that is probably not going to be too sensitive that you have to have full control over or keep within the data center. Uh, so that's a, that's a super simple one. But there's key themes here, right? There's top drivers around a business's strategic outcomes. It always comes down to how am I accelerating revenue? You know, how am I improving my business agility? And when you hear that term, it's kind of cheeky. It's, are you going to get acquired? Are you going to consolidate? Are you going to take on a new initiative for customer experience or build an app? So it's always being able to have a way to pivot, being able to have the access to scale. And that's where hybrid cloud or using multiple clouds can become very advantageous because you have the means to do things within the data center. But if you need that, that bursty instance of billing out a bunch of servers and only using them um, and paying for them when you need them, the public cloud is great for that. And then, of course, all this runs around cost reduction. So those are the key themes of why you're targeting, asking the right questions. Um, and archival data is definitely one of the, uh, the easier barriers to entry. Then how about, you, you mentioned earlier, uh, and I've heard you mention in the past, a term called data gravity. What what is data gravity? Yeah, so, so data gravity to me has been this huge switch recently, um, and it's being used a lot more. Um, it's definitely where I see the industry going. So, um, you know, I, I have a lot of thoughts around this. So, you know, I, there's, there's two really interesting use cases that I think that are developing and, and, and worth mentioning as it relates to, to data gravity. Um, you know, we're starting to see signals showing that, you know, what, what's to come in this whole thing we call the digital economy age from, from many angles, whether it's from collocated data centers, uh, network providers such as Megaport, um, public cloud providers, and even new players coming to the market to help try to solve this thing around data gravity. Um, you ever heard of like the phrase location, location, location? Um, you know, when you're buying or selling residential real estate, if you're going to go out house shopping, trying to sell your home or even looking for an apartment to rent, it's, it's easy to pop in your mind and go, am I in the right place? You know, am, you know, the right location. Am I in proximity to the things I can quickly get access to if I was to live or, you know, sell this place? So historically in real estate, that drives up the home value or rent costs because of your level of access to things like grocery store or a gas station or that cool sports bar, you name it. So think of that analogy that could be applied to, to really our, our industry as it relates to this massive shift in how much is evolving at such a fast pace around where data lives. And this is how I'm gonna get into data gravity. Um, thinking about smart devices and, and mobile devices and you know, an enterprise's head office and branch site, where hosted apps are used, and, and just the list goes on. You, you gotta start thinking about 
where's all this data going to live? And, and what am I going to use from a data center, private and public cloud standpoint to support this? Um, and I think this is so important, especially for enterprises that have already been on this journey of either factoring or already using um, hybrid or multi-cloud scenarios. You know, where's the location of this data being created? You know, where's it being processed? You know, where's the data being analyzed and to what extent? It's, to me, causing our industry to reevaluate and drive value towards how to deal and manage data at the local level. And when I mean local level, I'm talking per market, per region. So, like, if we're in the southeast right now, this specific region, keeping that data as close as possible to be able to either process it, analyze it, and move it, you got to be careful because it's going to get bigger, bigger, and bigger. Um, and to me, there's so much potential upside to create opportunities between us in the industry, service providers, partners, and advisors to figure this stuff out. So we also finally have the tools to start analyzing all this data, this data gravity, um, into which some of these tools or services causing this, this hockey stick, right? This big data effect. Um, you've got tools now in the public cloud, um, and a lot of them, that's where they live for big data analytics. Um, AI, right? Artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, smart algorithms. Essentially, smart everything is where we're going with all this data, and it's already happening. So, you know, how businesses and humans in general will unlock massive economic value to different types of services that will continue to be created from this. It's, in my lens, like kind of the future state of our economy and our, and our world on what we're doing with, with all this data. and also considering where do all these smart tools live is just as important. And I kind of alluded to a lot of them are in these public clouds. So are we gonna use them to analyze this data? Is that data gonna be close enough for latency and for cost to be able to support that? Um, you're really seeing hundreds of petabytes being processed a year with these businesses. It's only gonna keep growing. And so how, Will service providers, in my opinion, you know, enable access to lower the expense and time to use and manage this data, both in a co-located data center and in the public cloud? Uh, I, you know, I think about this all the time, and it's funny because you know Chris Sharp, CTO of Digital Realty, he said it. He said it pretty well. There's, you know, there's this thing called data lakes, um, and I'll be happy to share that term if, if you're not, if anybody's not familiar with it. And there's now data oceans. <laughs> so it's like as data becomes bigger let's break those terms down because i'm sure there's some listening who who are going to want to know what a data lake is and a data yeah. ocean is yep sure so you know it be, the data as it becomes bigger it becomes heavier and harder to move around so you know again if for anyone not familiar with the term think think of a large amount of data stored in its natural or raw format like a repository or object or file storage um, that's pretty much what I'm referencing here as a data lake. And it's becoming super important. Um, we have a bunch of data that is not very important, but it's all being stored somewhere. You're having to pay for that. You're also having to consider, how am I going to manage the storage? What's important to me? What's not? Is it going to be backed up? How am I going to analyze this data to make business decisions for today and for tomorrow? And that goes back into those smart tools and all those smart everything devices. Um, and 
you'll see it. You're already going to start seeing it. Um, between IoT, um, blockchain, 5G, all these new cutting edge technologies, that's happening from the suburbs on up to tier two, tier one market. And so we're really having to consider how quickly we can tap into this data and enablers that can provide more localized access where it's all about the location. That data gravity is going to be so important for providers to figure out how to look at it, store it, process it, analyze it. Um, and so how we're helping enable all of this. And I think it's already happening, which is really exciting. Um, there's, there's a lot of cool strategies that I think some data center providers and network service providers, um, such as, you know, Megaport, we're enabling this whole, uh, removing that wall garden approach, if you will, and also extending the reach of access to these major hubs these what I consider tier hotels, where the public cloud providers' edge points live to interconnect. Uh, so just really quickly uh, for anyone on, you know, my, my lens on what I represent by a carrier hotel, these major hubs, you know, think about, let's pick on the states, like your, your major NFL markets, your, your major metropolitan markets. You're going to have these facilities that are operated by an entity that could have multiple data center operators that are supporting customers for space power and cooling. And there could be multiple meeting rooms that may or not be on the same floors. Um, different conduit, different manholes coming in and out of the building for diversity. Uh, and this is going to be an inner exchange point for the largest service providers. Some of the most dense interconnection in that entire market for things like content, for things like the eyeballs and the, the search engines of, of the world and of the web, right? Um, your public cloud providers, your internet service and network service providers, they meet here to participate and share a community of routes, if you will. Um, some of this is done neutral. Some of this is done through paid transit. But this is almost the hub, if you will, to be able to get close as possible to the major destinations that most businesses and consumers ultimately are using every single day. The closer we have access to these locations, the more powerful it is. Um, and we'll, we'll go into that. Um, but essentially, what I'm seeing is a couple different things. Some data centers are focusing on this idea of network hubs, um, creating network architecture that's spread out that focuses on giving access to these exchange points and making things more native to a given market. Um, that way, what is that going to do? That's going to help with everything from performance and latency to be able to move this stuff and be able to afford the cost to do it. Um, and then leveraging some of these data centers are leveraging equipment themselves uh, where they can extend their network reach and using network as a service provider, such as um, who I work for with Megaport. And that's to deliver localized traffic to the closest edge point and to major different types of service destinations, uh, such as your hyperscalers, your Amazons, your Google, your Microsoft, right? Your Oracle, your IBMs of the world. Um, pretty sure it was Gary um, Wojcik from the CEO of Cyrus One who even referenced, uh, you know, data becoming this new gold of the internet. And that really relates again to this whole idea and term around data gravity is data sets become so large 
having the hooks into the shortest paths and meaning networks, you know, to be able to go from one given site where you may not have access to analyze or process all that data. Maybe you're relying on a public cloud. You need to be as close as possible to be able to do that. Support those costs, especially as we move through petabytes, zettabytes of data, for example. Um, so, you know, data is becoming the new gold of the internet and it's becoming increasingly hard to move around these huge amounts of data sets. Um, you know, there's a few other ones that come to mind that I think are super interesting. Like another play is cloud access points, um, creating enterprise locations that are close in proximity to some of these hyperscalers. It's not necessarily, again, this one size fits all approach, but having, um, you know, something that is within the proximity in the same market and being close to that, that you can connect directly to a hyperscaler. Um, it could be a good play. And then you're seeing micro data center providers um, that are like looking to build within market. So you have these mini kind of edge colo environment, edge exchanges and edge network services that support apps and new technology like 5G, which is really right around the corner. So, uh, you know, all these scenarios I think are super fascinating and it's just an interesting time to watch this unfold um, around this whole data gravity. Um, you know, ideas. It's just this constant amount, this pile of data and what we're doing with it. Yep. So one of the interesting concepts here is the reality that we still have. If you look, look at the hard metrics and hard data over, you know, the majority. So it's well over 50%, uh, in some cases over 60% of data is still resides on premise within corporate owned infrastructure environments. And yet this, you know, clearly this percentage has been decreasing year over year, migrating to, to various third party hosted service providers. Uh, clearly the hyperscalers being uh, a, a huge component of that, you know, hyperscalers being the AWS, uh, Azure, Google uh, environments. Um, but the market seems to be under the impression that the most of the data that is migrating out of these on-premise owned environments by corporations uh, is going into the hyperscale environment. Uh, you know, we could talk all day long, and I have on prior podcasts about what use cases are, uh, ideal use cases for leveraging those hyperscalers. Uh, and there's no disputing that the hyperscalers are growing massively. Uh, just look at their you know, quarter over quarter growth uh, from a, a revenue perspective uh, and how much capacity they keep taking down quarter over quarter around the world. Uh, but I think what is commonly overlooked is how much data is migrating to non-hyperscale hosted environments. So whether it's a, an MSP or it's a, just a managed, managed service, managed hosting provider, such as a rack space, or it's just a co-location facility, a, a company finally realizing, hey, we are not in the business and should not be in the business of owning and operating our own data center, or even you know the server closet that we have. It's more costly. It's not in our best interest. We don't have the redundancy, uh, the power backup, whatever it might be. Um, let's just push this into a third party. But I'm curious from your perspective, sitting uh, you know, in that internet exchange uh, platform world, where do you see the volume of data going? Is it all going into these hyperscale environments or is it distributed? What, what are your thoughts on that topic? Yeah, so I, I do think it's more distributed. And I, I think that there's, there's applications and workloads being created now in the public clouds as either a native app such as NetApp with, with Azure um, or even Veeam 
that are you're starting to see niche players come into market that ultimately are finding ways to tell and showcase the enterprise. Let me manage the storage for you. Um, let me help determine um, through automation what should stay and be controlled within your co-location or your on-premise environment. What should be moved into the cloud to help you um, control your cost and make better decisions of how you're doing backup and archive or replicating or thinking about some kind of disaster recovery scenario. So I do think that there's uh, services and features that are coming out that are kind of helping disrupt this idea that things are moving into the cloud, but I don't foresee the public cloud being able to um, to compensate for some of the things that a data center or a third party or managed service provider that ultimately can do within within um, a co-located environment. I do think this is going to be more of a distributed approach. Okay, so let's then back up here. That's that's good uh, context, and I think those listening should kind of take what what I said <laughs> and what Misha has said to heart here. Because um, the reason why I wanted to bring it up and get your take is because so many of the the industry analysts and even customers believe that everything is just migrating to the cloud. So they may as well mm-hmm. just migrate everything to the cloud and they don't understand the, the realities of why uh, data should or should not migrate into those environments in the first place. But, you know, there's a lot of data repatriation going on where co- companies are finally realizing that some of these applications don't need to be hosted there and it's a lot more costly than they thought and they're engineers that they thought they'd be able to get rid of uh, to save some costs by migrating that environment. Uh, because they, you know, it's hosted elsewhere. They're actually realizing they need might need some more engineers to learn the, how to best manage those environments in the different cloud IS environments. Um, but before you know, I go down any more of those rabbit holes. Um, what is a cloud on ramp? Because that's a key piece to interconnection and some of the value props. But if if someone you know is asking about cloud on ramps and, and you hear that term, how do you define what that is? Yeah, and depending on who you're talking to, they they may or may not favor that term. It is used throughout the industry, but just think of that as a service location. So that is the edge into a major cloud provider. Um, so essentially an NNI, a network-to-network interface that connects to a service provider facing that public cloud provider. That is almost, think about that as your gateway to get into their network. Um, and typically, either a data center or a, a network provider can establish the connectivity for you to connect to this thing called an on-ramp. Um, so you're really getting to the edge of of a cloud service provider's network, and then you will then ride their network into whichever specific part of that region or even a different cloud region within their own backbone uh, you're trying to reach to get tap into your own virtual private data center. Um, and those have their own different acronyms, virtual private cloud, virtual network, um, or whatever service that you're trying to get to. Gotcha. And there's, there's a new concept that uh, was first brought to my attention through you guys of a cloud router. Like what, what exactly is a cloud router and how is that different from any other type of, of on-ramp type of, of service? Yeah, so I'll, I, what I'll do is, so I'll back up and just explain a little bit about um, why we have this term cloud router. Um, first of all, it's cloud router represents 
layer three functionality. So if you look at the network stack, you're thinking about routing, moving packets from A to B um, over layer three network connectivity um, using layer three technology protocols, um, peering protocols. So um, <clears throat> Megaport, for example, we as a company have two offerings. One is a physical port that you can connect to and then you can logically create unique ID numbers. And those are VLANs, virtual local area networks that you can specify to be pushed over the port logically to get to different destinations on our network. Now, on top of that, you have what we call cloud router. Um, this is a layer three device that is productized through our company as a virtual appliance. And this is going to give you the capabilities of routing and moving your IP information from point A to point B. So if you're essentially, for example, in a data center and you have compute servers and storage and you have a switch that separates your different types of services over that infrastructure and you would like to be able to move data from there into a major public cloud provider, it could be a Google, a Microsoft Azure, an AWS, and so on, you could essentially create this layer three appliance that would then take IP information from your network and move it into one of those public clouds. And so essentially that's what we're doing. We're, we're using some of the latest and greatest technology to create what traditionally we've known as physical hardware. Instead of having up the physical hardware, we're deploying these cloud routers. Another way, too, that you could understand how um, a business connects and talks directly to a public cloud provider over a private network, meaning no internet involvement, is hearing participation, where your device, your router, is establishing a connection with that cloud provider. And they're using um, not the same term as a cloud router, but it's almost the same um, methodology where they have an internal router that becomes that peering relationship with the customer. And uh, businesses like Megaport that are network as a service, we're just passing that for you, making that easy for you to be able to connect. Uh, but essentially, that's really the second product that we offer is to remove that layer three connectivity that you have to manage, that you have to do and dynamically routing that traffic for you. And that's what's productized as a cloud router. Thank you for that. That was, uh, that's good. And I hope for those who are listening, that makes sense. And I'm gonna, uh, at the end and in the show notes have Misha's information, but I know, I know Misha is more than happy to dig into any <laughs> of these concepts at any time. Uh, to reach out and, and or reach out to anyone on, on our team because I know this stuff can get complicated and is complex, which is part of the reason why uh, the likes of Megaport, Compact Fabric, and Platform Digital, and Economic CCX, and many others exist is to hopefully simplify a lot of this stuff for customers because uh, at the end of the day, all they're looking to do is connect as simply and easily and cheaply as possible uh, and as flexibly as possible to the different carriers or SaaS providers or cloud environments that they want to get to, right? But the reason why I wanted to bring this up is there's different ways to go about it, right? You don't have to be physically next to a, a switch that's owned by Megaport. There's other ways to access those switches 
and reach uh, this basically this exchange of options, um, which is you know it, it's game changing for the industry. No, so, it's huge. And, and, yeah. and to your point, you know, just to keep this simple, you're moving data, right? This is all about where data is and where it's going, how you get to use it and consume it. Um, and, and ultimately, if you have any other questions, like Sean had said, let's, you're more than happy to be able to reach out to me because, um, you know, there's, there's ways to keep it as simple as possible. And ultimately, that's what we're doing through our portal. Um, and how we design the solutions, but essentially you getting to hear and learn a little bit about how it works, it, it definitely goes a long way for, for, for you and for your customers. So let's keep dropping some knowledge here. Um, and one of the things I want to do is break down the claim that egress fees are lower when connected to a cloud services platform such as AWS, Azure, Google, when you're leveraging an interconnection platform such as Megaport. So what, you know, can you break that down for me? There's there's a understanding by both the partners and the providers who are pushing out there that if you're connected to a Megaport or an Equinix CCX or any of the other companies that I've mentioned, you know, your your cost of pulling data out of those different public cloud environments is less than it would be if you had a direct connect of some sort into those public cloud environments. Can we can we break down and demystify what the heck that conversation is and, and what the technology and realities are of that? Yeah, definitely. So there's there's really two flavors to how you can access and tap into a public cloud provider. You you have two lanes. You can either go over the public internet or you can go direct. Um, the benefits of going direct versus over the public internet is that you're, one, going to have more control over how you're getting there. So the consistency of performance, you're actually giving yourself a way more better approach to security. Um, you don't have to worry about malicious attacks and DDoS and mitigation because you're privately going to them. Um, you're going to have better latency and better throughput, and, and the list goes on. But there's two different approaches. Um, and with that being said, the cloud provider is also going to charge two different ways depending on if you're using the internet or if you're going direct. Um, and they all have their own productized names for going direct. For example, AWS Direct Connect. Microsoft Azure Express Route, Google Cloud Interconnect or Partner Interconnect, Oracle Fast Connect, IBM Direct Link. And so that also, that list goes on. It all means the same thing. You're either using the internet through traditional IP VPN, or you're going privately and direct through your data center or network service partner, such as Megaport. Any data that you send the cloud, you're not going to charge you on the ingress fees, it's always what you're pulling out of the cloud and consuming. And now if you go to the internet, they're going to charge you a cost that is drastically different than going direct. Why do they do that? Rule number one for that is the idea that you're very likely going to use and consume more if you go direct. And they're also trying to incentivize you to reap the benefits, better performance, better security, um, and throughput by going direct. So that is common through all of the cloud public cloud providers. What is different is how they bill you when you go direct. And so regardless of who you're using to privately enable you to use a public cloud provider, there may or may be different charges. And it all depends on that public cloud, and they do vary. Um, one thing that's good is I strongly educate you on going and checking out their landing page on their website to just look at the direct connect cost. 
do you compare that in your total your total model? I mean, is it going to make a big difference for you to use XYZ cloud provider versus this on your egress fees? Factoring that on top of how you're getting there. You know, is it through the data centers, is it through a megaport? Is there a traditional carrier involved? Um, what other components do you have to factor for your access, including the egress charges from that cloud partner? And then on top of that, whether or not they charge a port fee for using their direct connect access. So there could be a couple moving parts here. This is all stuff that we can arm you with. We can pull you on where to go. We also have this collateral. But these are definitely things food for thought to consider as you're building out your cost for the actual networking itself. So there, there's two pieces here uh, that I want to follow up with. One is if you purchase any one of those direct connect services from the carriers uh, into Azure or into AWS or whoever it might be, right? Typically, those have a term contract to them, correct? Yeah, they sure do. You're going to be nailed down to a term. Yeah, and whether that's 12 months, 24 months, 36 months, or whatever, right? Um, you know, the sales rep who works at the carrier, or whoever that's selling you the direct connect is going to clearly want you to send the longest term possible because that's how, in most cases, they're, they're incentivized through quotas that they have within their company. Uh, but what, you know, the other option, right, would be to connect through one of these different cloud exchange platforms, inter internet uh, interconnection platforms. Are there specific term uh, terms that you force customers to sign within Megaport? Uh, no, actually. So I think that's one of the disruptive things that you'll see is in, that's going on in the industry is that the network as a service providers uh, specific to Megaport, you know, we've, we've flipped that traditional model on its head. So there's no longer that you're on the hook for a term. You can use these services for as little as long as you want. And by default, they're all on month to month terms. Um, but depending on what you're doing, whether you need it for a day, a week, month, or a year, you as a business or you as an advisor for your customers can ultimately showcase that they have full control over this. So once they connect to a megaport, for example, they can spin up separate unique virtual connectivity to any of these major clouds and consume that for as little as long as they want. So then they can focus on what they should be doing. And that's you know, my use cases, you know, what workloads am I really, what do I care about? Are they in production? Are they mission critical? Am I piloting? Am I doing, you know, a proof of concept to where they may use it for a few weeks at a time? They may even just do a migration and want to turn it off. And unlike a traditional carrier, telco, they're not on the hook for having to keep that connectivity up. They can turn it down and they can turn it back on as they need to, which is a great way to be able to manage your costs. So the other key piece that I really want those listeners to understand is how is it that that cost for pulling data out of any one of these public cloud environments is less uh, from a per, you know, per megabyte or gigabyte, let's say, uh, basis uh, from an egress perspective coming out of AWS when you have either a direct connect or you have uh, you know connection through one of the inter internet uh, inter exchange platforms versus going through the public internet, like what what is happening from a physical perspective that allows those uh, allows that reality and paradigm to play out the way it does? 
people say, yeah, oh, this, this, there must be some kind of like trick or some, uh, you know, some, some sleight of hand behind the scenes uh, that's going on as to why AWS is charging more for a customer to pull their data out when they're accessing via the public internet versus through one of these private networks. But that's, you know, there is no sleight of hand. This comes down to basic fundamental uh, principles of, you know, location and technology. And I'd love for you to break that down. Yeah, there's no really bait and switch to this at all. It's it's really kind of, I, I lightly alluded to it earlier about the idea that they really do focus on watching and the maturity of customers going direct and how they do see uptick on consumption um, because you're investing and spending the time to go direct and private to their public cloud. They see the benefits in more consumption and more being used because you're taking your connectivity a lot more seriously by doing that. And so they're incentivizing that behavior by reducing those costs. Statistically, you can see egress fees from the internet compared to going direct being dropped anywhere from 40, 50, 60, 70%, depending on um, who that public cloud is. So anywhere from 40 to 70% is that window. So there's definitely advantages to doing that. Um, you're, you're getting into the same type of physical infrastructure you may be coming into the network from different locations, obviously internet versus going direct where they're connecting to major network providers such as Megaport. Uh, but ultimately that incentivization is there based off of how much they see enterprises consuming. It's really that simple to be honest with you. That's a key piece for people to, to know and understand how that all plays out. Uh, one of the other questions that I get frequently is, you know, what, what are the differences between the different interconnection uh, providers in the marketplace? And there's there's really a variety of, let's just go with the macro level. So you have the specific platform providers, and I would I would put you and uh, Packet Fabric and Platform Digital and Equinix ECX into those buckets, even though Packet Fabric is a little bit different in what their focus is, not so much the, well, I guess it would be a little bit different in a variety of ways, but I don't want to dig down that rabbit hole right now. Uh, then you have the carriers themselves who have their own interconnection services uh, you know, through CenturyLink or Zeo or whoever it may be. Uh, and then you also have the traditional peering exchanges, which have been around you know, forever, uh, for decades at this point, uh, such as Lynx and Amsix and uh, Nysix and the rest of them. So Within those three groupings, right? So what is a customer going to get from the likes of a, or a DKEX, right? So versus the likes of a CenturyLink versus the likes of a Megaport, you know, are there key differences uh, that you see offered from those providers? Yeah, so just breaking apart, there's, there's, there's obviously internet exchanges that now have the capability of having hooks into some of the public clouds. There's traditional carriers and network providers that fundamentally usually provide terms and you have connectivity to just that one thing being that you're going from A to B and that's it. And that's what you're nailed down to from the speed, from a, from, from a term and a cost standpoint. Then you have disruptors in the market, um, such as Megaport or Packet Fabric. Um, this service exchange platform with Digital Realty or even Equinix's uh, cloud exchange, ECX. So they're not a true apples to apples, but it's good to understand their lanes and you know where they potentially could shine. Um, 
you know, speaking for kind of Megaport and, you know, now that we've been a household name for over half a decade, we, we had, we're, we're a bit different for one core reason. There's multiple, but one core reason is we, we came into the market as this software defined network. And really that, that's really the technology that drove us being this provider networking as a service um, back in 2015. And so it gave us this runway to be able to have such a vast reach. Um, and we've, we've leveraged that. We've committed to every quarter going into more and more markets that make sense and taking signal from both our partners, data centers, our cloud provider partners and our customers are where we want to, where we should go. And so now we have enabled over 500 data centers where if you have a common point of presence, you can immediately pick up a megaport in the building. You can physically cross connect to it once. And once you're, your gears connected to ours, uh, typically at a common meeting room, you then can fan out multiple services. You can do dozens and dozens of connections versus a traditional care network service provider that's just going to give you a one-to-one connection to just one thing, one destination. Um, you can do one-to-many with us. You also can do one-to-many with some other network as a service providers. Um, Packet Fabric uh, Service Exchange with Digital Realty and Equinexus Cloud Exchange. I think where things start to vary is you look at the geography. You, you you start getting educated on well, where is their footprint? You know, what do they have access to? What types of to Sean's point earlier, what is a cloud on ramp? Where are these cloud on ramps? How much access do they have to them? Um, and if you look at where we're at in this space, we actually have one of the largest footprints globally covering Asia Pacific, Europe, the Middle East, and now North America, and the largest amount of cloud on-ramps as an exchange. Um, so depending on where you're located, that may mean a lot to you for not only your primary connectivity, for potentially backup for a disaster recovery solution. And so those kind of things start getting uncovered as you start understanding more about who's in this space that can offer me potential public cloud services privately, and where can they take me to? Um, and who's innovating, right, and in what ways? So I think this space definitely is continuing to evolve and to grow. Um, and in some of these providers, especially like Digital Realty, with their, their, their service exchange platform, uh, with Digital Platform and Equinix's Cloud Exchange, they have a very dense footprint too. Um, I think where Digital Realty shines is that they completely align with the model of being able to extend reach from their four walls into other sites where they get that there could be not only multi-cloud, but multi-site scenarios, multi-region with Digital Realty and, and beyond. And in leveraging um, the support and the partnership um, you know, that we've had uh, as with, with Megaport. So there's lots of different ways to look at this, and it's absolutely worth looking and comparing uh, between the major ones that are, are doing a lot of different access to these major destinations. So since you brought it up, uh, I'd love, you know, are you able to speak to what that strategic relationship is that you have with Digital Realty Trust? Um, we're, I mean, if you look at, if you look at us as a whole, um, we're a, a, a neutral shop, meaning that one of the huge core values of working with Megaport is that we have 
literally over 90 unique data center operators globally. And that gives us the flexibility to stay nimble and to also give businesses access to a lot of destinations. Um, I kind of lightly touched on this whole walled garden approach earlier when we were talking about data gravity, but it's really just that, removing that barrier and realizing that content data networks, public cloud providers, other types of major network service providers and as a service offerings like a Nutanix or an SAP, for example, these big workloads, um, they're not all going to live in one specific data center operator. They may be dispersed. And as the as our market and our ecosystem continues to expand, you get to reap the benefit of accessing and tapping into more of those. Um, and so it's it's pretty much that simple. Um, and the same goes for digital realty. They get exposure to this entire ecosystem plus the massive ecosystem they have where customers can leveraging reaching their sites from anywhere on our network, our platform, um, even if they end up being in a non-digital realty site. So it, it really works hand in hand um, and and we're, we're neutral in that aspect. So it was my understanding at one point that the digital uh, digital's inter- interconnection platform uh, was basically a white labeled version of Megaport. And to that degree, uh, and this was a couple of years ago that I had a conversation with with their team, it limited digital limited the exposure of the individual customer who was connecting in through their specific platform uh, and didn't allow that customer to see the full extent of the entire megaport ecosystem and only that which was within digital's um, you know walled garden as as you called it. Is that still the case or is that not the case anymore? So their service exchange gives them access to any destination on our platform, um, to all of our service providers. As far as if they limit to specific sites, um, I'm not aware of if they still have that limitation or not. Um, I'd, I'd have to sync up with them on that. Gotcha. Well, you also hit on one of the key key points here is, uh, you know, I had a, a customer, for example, that was looking at doing a global uh, data center consolidation and migration project. And they were in core site facilities. They were in Cyrus One, QTS, Equinix, a variety of different providers. And they were asking me, you know, which, what was the ideal approach moving forward? And there's a gajillion different variables. Uh, but one of the key things that I try to express to them is that because they're in all of those different providers, one of the things that they needed to be looking at was the likes of a Megaport solution because you're in with all those providers. And you mentioned there's like 90 different data center service providers that you work with. And that is that is a very unique value proposition in, uh, in the marketplace, whereas Equinix ECX is in Equinix locations and only Equinix locations. Um, you know, Megaport is in a handful of those Equinix locations as well as, you know, nearly every other provider in the marketplace. Um, and as of this call, at least the data I have in front of me, it's nearly 400 different data centers that you guys have um, points of presence within uh, around the world. So that's, that is something that's very unique and uh, differentiator in the marketplace for you guys. Yeah, and I think you hit it on the head. I, I, and it goes back to, I, I lightly highlighted, it's, it's not necessarily an apples-to-apples comparison here. It's, it's really just spending a little bit of time to to understand the landscape of of 
what is our footprint and, and what can we reach as it relates to extending the network for a customer to get into another data center that may be a different vendor, right? A different shop or a specific service destination that they want to tap into that's going to help them run their business or for their customers. Um, you know, so that goes for the enterprise and for our resale partners. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely think being neutral and having that exposure and having access to over 500 sites now, it opens up more opportunity and more choice for, for businesses, whether they're going to stay in a building, they're going to do a partial or full migration, or they're running in tandem and, you know, they're now doing hybrid cloud or they want to use multiple clouds. Um, and if they don't want to deal with the heavy lifting of managing the layer three and moving those packets and, and having something dynamically make those decisions for them, you can bolt on that cloud router that we, we lightly touched on earlier. So the cloud router in our footprint and being neutral is, is such a huge difference, I think, in kind of comparing and, and looking at where we sit in this space and kind of the maturity of, of being the first one to, to kick this off um, back in 2015. And, you know, it's pretty exciting. We just hit our 21st country. Uh, so we just popped out in Osaka and in Tokyo and Japan, and we're continuing to go into markets where our cloud partners and, and customers, and especially our data center partners are, are telling us, hey, this is where we really think now it's time to go into underserved markets. So related to all this, and we've talked a lot about connecting into cloud service providers, but one of the other key value propositions that we see for customers of ours that are, are banking institutions or insurance companies, or uh, and you can name any of them. Uh, and I want to use, let's just say Salesforce as an example. They're looking to connect to specific SaaS software as a service applications that their company uses on a regular basis. And the traditional method through which their employees or their customers, but primarily employees internally are leveraging those applications that are critical to their business would be through the public internet. Uh, however, through these types of interconnection platforms, if that SaaS application, like a Salesforce, you know, for your for your sales team, right, is connected to the exchange, you can also set up a direct connect into, in many cases, those SaaS applications. So you can create a private line to those SaaS applications that are critical to your business, which goes back to why it is that you would do this in the first place that we were talking about in the beginning of the conversation from a a stability standpoint and security standpoint, um, you know, do you see that as a common use case or is, you know, to what degree are your customers coming in you to connect to different SaaS platforms uh, versus just using it to, to do multi-cloud or, or cloud deployments? Yeah, it, it definitely is. So, you know, being completely transparent and we just reported on this, you know, over 60% of the consumption on our platform is towards some kind of, cloud entity, right? Public entity. It could be a major hyperscaler or to Sean, what you just had brought up, it could be directly to an as a service provider, such as SAP or such as Salesforce. So if you want to tap in directly to HANA 4 and get to your enterprise resource planning and your business suite, you now have direct access to peer directly with them over Megaport. If you want to tap in your CRM platform through Salesforce, you now have direct access. So we're, we're moving, that's part of our evolution too, is we're constantly focusing on integrating with as a service providers directly to make this even more seamlessly for a business to be able to peer directly and do their business to business 
um, day-to-day flows between these providers. So we absolutely see it today, and we're going to continue to onboard and integrate. And I think that's kind of another key ingredient of where we're at in this space is if you really look at our portal and the level of UI and UX, and what I mean by that is the look and the feel, that customer flow, we take all the complexity out of it. You're really able to do point and click in the portal and spin up this connectivity in minutes. Um, and we're following that same fashion as we onboard more as a service providers, just making it easier for you as the end customer. So yeah, we definitely see it. We're going to continue to onboard more and more on the uh, network. So there's two other questions I want to dig into that I think you can shed light on as it relates to interconnection platforms. And it has to do with how people connect to uh, the platforms and how uh, what that process is. So if someone wants to leverage Megaport for either the uh, let, let's say they're sitting in a data center already that you have a present that Megaport has a point of presence within. What does that process look like from soup to nuts? You know, hey, uh, I want to connect to the Megaport uh, switch or, or or pick up a port on the Megaport platform inside the building that I'm already in. And then the other would be if they want to leverage the virtual cloud router uh, solution. What does that process look like? Yeah, sure. So. Um if you were to create your own portal account, you essentially could go and search for your specific data center where both Megaport and you have a common point of presence. In about a minute, you could actually deploy a dedicated physical port that is not only live, but configured on our network gear in the building where you have a common point of presence. That's going to be the easiest approach if you wanted to physically connect into our network. Um, and from the portal, you're immediately getting a letter of authorization. And traditionally, that wouldn't be the case. It used to be you'd have to deal with the service delivery team. You'd have to deal with a firm order commitment, which could take weeks. And you're maybe playing ping pong over email, um, waiting for when you're going to get that LOA. Um, and that still happens a lot of times with all the manual intervention that you have to deal with with, with a traditional carrier or telco. So, with us, no longer the days that you have to deal with that type of experience. It's really self-serve. And the way that you could figure out if you have a common point of presence is literally just going to our locations page. You're going to see all 500 plus sites that you can just search by keyword and put in exactly where you're located. Or if you wanted to poke around and look at a specific country or a specific region, you can drill down and look at the market and just say, this is where they have diversity. This is where I have another footprint. or just get an idea of where we are. Um, it's kind of cool, too, that we'll also talk about where we're going. So you'll see some sites pop up within like a 30-day build-out where it says coming soon. We even put those into the portal. So at least you know that you can either pre-order or you can see other new deployments that we're going into within the next month. So it's really nice that we go ahead and put that in there for things that are active in our pipeline from a deployment standpoint. You get your LOA from the portal, you're gonna hand it over to your data center operator. They're gonna patch you over. So they're gonna physically cross connect you to your dedicated Megaport back from your gear in that common meet me room. That typically could take several days, maybe take up to a week. We actually give you a full two week window before any kind of billing would kick in. So you actually have a runway to do this and kind of proactively get your LOA assigned just by creating that port. Once that physical port is connected, 
you then can virtualize connectivity. You can specify these layer two network VLAN tags that are assigned on your network gear that are connected to your compute. And you can pick and choose which ones you want to use that we will pass transparently to that B end, whatever that B end destination may be. If you want to get to an AWS, a Google, a Microsoft, and the list goes on, or any other kind of hyperscaler as a service provider, you can do that. Um, and they're going to land on our dashboard, meaning that any business, any service provider that we've integrated with is going to be on our dashboard homepage for you to be able to spin up services. We also have a marketplace for any other enabled service provider. They may have not done the full integration, but they'll accept your VLAN tags and you can end up establishing peering with them. And there's hundreds. We have hundreds of service providers on the platform that you can literally log into an account and just see who's available, whether they're local, in the region, cross-regionally, or around the globe to support you, depending on where you geographically are. Um, this is all layer two connectivity, so keep in mind we're just passing your VLAN tag data for you. And if it just so happens that you have a very, uh, a very um, minimal router or a firewall managing your layer three connectivity, you, you don't want to deal with additional hardware. You don't want to deal with additional licensing. You don't want to deal with, you know, if I'm going to have an end of life shelf life on, on my layer three device. Um, and deal with the complexities of routing. That's where, from a data center standpoint, you could bolt on what we call the cloud router. So Sean alluded to that. That's really the only other thing we do. You could connect the cloud router to your megaport. And from there, that is going to manage all of the layer three IP information, the connectivity between your data center and any of the attachments that you connect to that cloud router. All of this is occurring and being attached to what we call a VXE. It's just the productized term for a virtual connection. And that's what's disrupting the market. We see it. You know, you go from physical interconnections with that one physical connection connecting your gear and ours to now having virtualized connectivity to get to one to many destinations all over the world, you know, really at your fingertips and use it for as little as long as you want. So for the physical connection to a megaport environment you know really the limiting factor is going to be how long it takes the data center provider to run that physical cross connect for you for the most part you know obviously there's some uh configuration that has to be done pre-post um but that is relatively nominal but for the the virtual cloud router uh environment that that you know am i wrong in saying that that should be a heck of a lot faster for those who want to jump on even quicker yeah, so so that was for the, the physical. Let's say, for example, um, you don't have a data center or you only want to create a, a virtual point of presence, for example, a VPOP, and you have a workload or many inside of a public cloud, and you go, you know what, I really want to be able to run these services or features or these analytics in another public cloud. How can I connect the two? How do I do that privately? How do I manage the cost? How do I bypass the internet? Welcome to Megaport. You can create a Megaport cloud router to either connect to your physical data center, or you can have it just connect directly to different destinations on our network. We host these cloud routers on our private network, on our own gear. 
and we are deploying them through your own self-service web portal by Megaport for you to be able to connect different things. Those things could be one public cloud to the next, and all of those are being connected over layer two virtual connections, those VXCs. So again, to that point, you can spin these things up in a matter of minutes, and they scale. You can, you can do them anywhere from uh, lower rate services, sub one gig, all the way up to 10 gig. Um, and you have that capability to immediately spin it up and go cloud to cloud, or if you want to connect it to a data center, as long as you have a megaport, you can connect that in a matter of a minute. Beautiful. And that, that, uh, that service, as I first found out about it and really started understanding it, is what was the major explosion in my brain about how this is transforming the industry where you know, having a virtual router isn't really all that unique, but the capabilities baked into those routers uh, through that software-defined network uh, concept, and it, that is what truly is game-changing. And I, um, you know, I'm trying to do my part, man, to to spread the word and evangelize because uh, I feel like so many companies can be, should be, and would be leveraging this. They just really understood it, and I'm still unfortunately fighting a battle within uh, the. Uh, the partner community in that uh, a lot of these folks just don't want to change the way that they've been selling services for so long. Uh, and when you bring in a technology like this, they still scratch their heads as to um, how their customers can leverage this in part because you have to have some kind of an understanding around where the data is going to live for that customer uh, and you know how the cloud environments are being leveraged by the customer. And I think that's kind of maybe one of the key missing um, pieces of the puzzle for a lot of these consultants is they haven't fully wrapped their head around where the data lives and the conversation around where the data lives and the applications uh, living in those environments. And so they just stick to what they know, which is how data gets from point A to point B. And these types of technologies that we're talking about are really advantageous for uh, moving specific data from point A to point B. And if you can't have that conversation about what data is traversing the line and why, it's going to be hard to explain the value proposition. I'm kind of almost thinking out loud here, but um, yeah, that's that's just my <laughs> some of my closing thoughts on the topic. Well, that's such a good point, and I actually think it that's one of the best ones that comes top to mind is starting to just fact find and add into your your roster. You know, where's your customer coming from, and then ultimately, where is that data at, or where's it trying to get to? Um, Look, the, the Megaport Cloud Router, it's new. I mean, we, we initially launched this um, back in early 2018, um, and we've, we've done additional augments. We've, we've added all kinds of new routing zones, so that way there's new ones that you can host closer to you depending on what market you're in, keeping traffic local. Um, but it's so new to the market, the technology, the idea that you now have this virtual appliance that can connect privately to all sorts of cloud destinations and data centers is just, it's unheard of, um, you know, and I know other providers are starting to, to come up and, and try to do something um, in, in similarity, but what really makes us different is that we keep it so simple with the way that we keep adding features and making it click through in the portal, not modular, adding into your point, all of these cool routing features and attributes to make it more custom and more specialized depending on what the customer is trying to do. Um, so really fact finding and understanding where that data is and where it's trying to go 
and then kind of painting the picture or bringing in an essay. Um, I will say it's pretty special the team of solution architects we have across the globe on them, you know, willing to whiteboard and, and build out solutions and just educate in general. So, you know, again, towards the end of the call, I'm sure you'll get my contact information, but we've got a great team that are willing to just scope that out. And if anything, just help provide context to how this product works and how it can fit for you as a customer for your own customers. Um, but yeah, it's it, that's a that's a really good point, Sean. So let's dig into uh, some other questions that I've got. One is given the uh, the travel that you do, I'm curious what you've seen in your recent travels that has been something that made you cause or given you cause to stop and and ponder, or uh, something that's blown your mind, or, or something unique that you've noticed uh, in the marketplace or, or around you over the last few days, weeks, or months. Well, you know, just bouncing around some of these cloud conferences and summits and, and hearing all the latest announcements, there's this trend with a lot of these public clouds where, um, you know, they're, they're playing their part as it relates to localized traffic and realizing that, um, you know, there's so much data being processed by us, you know, like our phone, that becomes the edge. You know, somebody's edge could be their core as, you know, as a provider, but ultimately consumers and businesses using it you know, for, for their business, for, for personal demos, all this is data and needs to be processed and analyzed. And so um, you're starting to find very niche focuses on what these public cloud providers are achieving and providing, um, such as AWS Outpost, and you have Google Anthos, and you have Azure Stack, and they're now moving infrastructure in a way that customers can have that same look and feel of compute from a public cloud inside of their co-located environment, right? Inside of their data center. So they're extending infrastructure, they're managing it for customers on their behalf. Um, I think that's super interesting. That's been going on for more than the last three months, but coming back from uh, reInvent and the tail end of uh, towards the holidays last year, lots of announcements came around um, 5G and connectivity and, and outpost capabilities with, with um, Direct Connect, using providers like Megaport, leveraging 5G technology, support uh, the support from the data center operators. So I think that's super fascinating to, to hear about that and where that's going and how they're constantly pushing their network closer and closer into um, all these metropolitan markets. We've seen this massive uptick in the amount of cloud service locations or AKA on-ramps that Megaport has enabled um, over the last three months. I think we've done more in the last three months than we have any other quarter since I've been here for the past four years. It's amazing. I think we're up to, we just hit this past week, 158 unique cloud service locations on ramps on our platform that you can pick and choose from between the different types of hyperscalers and as a service providers. So it's telling, it's moving the edge closer, the cloud edge closer to the customers to be able to support hybrid and multi-cloud, um, especially with, you know, their, their data center infrastructure. Appreciate that. The other connection I have, given you've spent nearly 15 years now as a engineer in the industry, what would be some advice or what is some advice that you would have for some up and coming or new, newer engineers getting into our industry and in our space or who are potentially even thinking about coming into in the industry? 
Yeah, I, well, the it's it's tremendously grown so much. There's so many lanes you can choose from. Um, there's so many different types of providers that play their part in supporting the the end-to-end solution, if you will, for for a business. Integrators, managed service providers, um, the co-location space, the, the networking, right, the IT behind it. Uh, figuring out at least taking the time to go explore what excites you and trying to narrow that down to a few things and then ask questions, go to summits, go to conferences, start doing networking. Um, I think it's human nature to gravitate towards people who you can just tell are excited and they're passionate and there's never a wrong question. I know that can sound corny and cliche sometimes, but putting yourself out there and asking questions Somebody will take that Sears, who is successful, who who does care, to give you the chance or to give you that mentorship. And when I say mentorship, that goes in so many different ways. To me, mentorship can be just a single piece of advice to somebody who's constantly checking up or giving me guidance or willing to help me get to somewhere because they believe in me. The same can happen for you. I've seen it year in, year out. Um, I think when I was at Charter, I know we completely switched gears after that first role. But I think the, the career I had with just that company alone, I was in, uh, I want to say at least six or seven different positions. And that's the showcase that, you know, putting yourself out there, showing your will, showing your drive, all those just fundamentals will help you. Um, and then spending the time to to allocate time, like time management around studying and practicing and um, actually not just going off of brain dumps, but testing yourself, actually doing demos so you really do understand and comprehend what it is that you're trying to learn to become an engineer or be skilled in IT um, will help you to Sean's point about just not clicking through and completing a, you know, completing some kind of uh, certification, right? You're actually getting certified, you're actually validating what it is that you 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 took on, that you consumed, that you know. And it's you hit on four different things here. So find out what you're passionate about, put yourself out there and ask questions, find a mentor. I would even add to find a mentor, find a mentor specifically who aligns with your values and your vision, uh, because there's a lot of people out there who may want to help you. But if you can specifically find someone who's aligned with your, you know, your ethos and what how you operate in from a values perspective, right? They may have different opinions about how the world operates, but from a values perspective, I found that those types of mentors tend to stick much, much longer term and then block the time to learn and test your own knowledge. And you know, even for those who are on the sales side, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, I, I don't go to sales trainings anymore because they're a waste of my time. There's nothing I'm going to learn that I don't already know. But when you look at their day-to-day practices, they don't put very much, if any, of the the tools that they may have learned in those sales trainings into practice, uh, and so I think that they're they're good to at least remind us of what we could be doing and should be doing. And I'm you know case in point, I'm not putting myself uh, any above anyone else in that perspective. I find that um, there's a lot of things that I've learned and had to relearn a million times uh, before they become habits uh, to my day to day practice. But it's the same for any any industry, right? You got to learn it, you got to relearn it, and you got to put it into practice, and you got to keep it in practice uh, so that it becomes a habit. And if you don't, you'll lose it. It's just human nature and how our brain uh, our brain operates. But that's all yeah, great, great data dump for for those listening and for those who do want to get a hold of you, Misha. How what's the best way for them to reach you and get a hold of you? 
Yeah, so uh, Misha, M-I-S-H-A at megaport.com. Um, pretty straightforward. Feel free to reach out to me anytime, any questions, any reference material I can help you with or you know, my two cents on, on what I've got cooking now or um, you know, any, any guidance I can, I can help you with. Feel free to ping me anytime. Um, you know, drop me a message, DM me, if you will, on, on LinkedIn, and uh, we can go from there. Beautiful. And then last but not least, uh, actually second to last but not least, I'm going to give a short little plug. Um, Megaport, Packet Fabric, uh, CenturyLink, D-Kicks, Links, Digital Realty, and Peerport have all assisted in putting together what is called a, what we call an interconnection playbook. So it's on interconnection services, and it was myself, Kristen Koch, and Jim Davis in connection with the folks over at Structure Research who have put together a agnostic uh, playbook on the interconnection services industry. And it is available now at interconnectionplaybook.com. So for anyone listening who really wants to dive deeper on this topic, definitely go there, check it out, give it a download, uh, and give us feedback. This is going to be a working, uh, a living, breathing document. We're going to make constant updates. And the way we've set it up is that as we make updates, uh, the link that is shared to the document is going to be updated as those updates are made. And then every six months, we're going to be rolling out um, new chunks of of uh, information and data uh, to update the document as well. So I would highly recommend you check that out. And then the, the last, last piece, Misha, which I know you know this is coming, I've been listening to a couple of our podcasts, is the question, do you love data centers? Yeah, man, I love data centers. I also love this series too, man. I think it's awesome. So glad to be a part of it. Appreciate it. Well, thank you so much again, man. This has been a great conversation. Have yourself a beautiful day and a great weekend. And I'm sure we'll be talking here soon. Yeah, you too, brother. Cheers, man. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.